Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hazel from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is Mr. Tim Perkins. Perko, how on earth are you, sir? Daniel, very, very well, my friend, in our new little studio here. Indeed, and not only is Mr. Tim Perkins joining mm, us. Who is that master man in the corner? <laughs> we have our newest recruit here at Cut Through Coaching, Mr. Ray Francis. Raymond, how are you, sir? Never better, Daniel. <laughs> never better. Never better. I've heard that before. It is never. Yes. He's, he's on this continual incremental mm. climb to betterness. Um, yeah, Ray, you're our uh, newest recruit. We, You and I, in fact, all of us go back, um, you know, some way. Perko, for, how, how long have you known Franny? Well... But it's more than some way, isn't it? It's all the way. way. All the way. All the way. Well, I'm we, 103 now, so. <laughs> we met in 1998, 25 mm. years ago. Wow. We taught at the same school together. Mm. Yes. Saw him across the playground, thought, he's someone, <laughs> he's someone I could happily play with. <laughs> and we've been playing together ever since. There we go. And yeah, and I met Franny back in 2003, Franny. On Australia Day, two thousand and three, oh. where the your previous colleague had had decided they weren't coming back for that school year, That's I got right. I got the call, and it was the uh, I I knew that if I could rock up on Australia Day for the interview, I was going to get the job because ain't no Aussie giving up a public holiday. <laughs> That's what I figured, and so there I was, met you, and yeah, worked together for ten years before I uh, set off and embarked on this voyage, picked up Perco along the way, and and, and now... And here I am, like it, a bit of driftwood, finally washes up on the beach. Indeed, but it's it's absolutely great to have you here, buddy, and um, yeah, looking forward to uh, what lies ahead. But I can tell you what lies ahead right now, Perco, mm. which is a conversation that you and Ray... I mean, nothing like throwing him in the deep end. No, we it, threw him straight in the deep yeah. end, and we got him on, not just with, you know, we, we threw him straight in the academic deep end as well. Absolutely. Dr. Rebecca Colley, who works at the University of New South Wales, and she had a great chat with us um, around some research she's been doing, particularly around well-being for early career teachers. Yep. And so for those of us who aren't in the education space, so listeners who don't necessarily know, I mean, it's maybe it's self-evident, but just talk a little bit about, help bring people into the picture. Why, why are we so... Uh, focused on on well-being and early career teachers specifically yeah well as you'll hear in the conversation you know some of the research and it's been going for quite a while this research is suggesting that early career teachers um, are often leaving the profession far earlier than they ever intended to Um, and there's a number of factors for that we explore some of those factors in the interview today Um, and Teacher well-being is such an important thing. You know, it's a, it's an environment where people are feeling under incredible pressure. They're often being asked to do things that they're not as well uh, prepared for as they'd like to be. And I say that as someone who used to be involved in the preparation of early career teachers um, at university. And But really thinking about some of the challenges that early career teachers face and some of the practical things that they can do... Um, to sustain themselves in this profession, to to continue with this thing that they've actively chosen and really want to do, have a, a values-driven passion for, but they're just finding the conditions too difficult. Mm. So I think, Dan and Ray, you know, there's a lot of crossover here. This is, of course, it is sort of education and teacher-specific, 
but the relevance of this across all environments mm. I, I think is super important. Like how do we really consider the belonging element for uh, new recruits, whether it's in a footy team, in a corporate environment, uh, in a school environment, whatever it is, how do we ensure that they get what they need so that they can thrive. That's probably yeah. the bottom line. So, awesome. yeah, it's got it's got relevance way beyond education. All right. Awesome. Well, uh, let's jump into it then. It's a delight to have you with us today, Rebecca. Thanks for having me on the show. It's our pleasure. So um, you're an associate professor. You're in the, the Faculty of Education Psychology at the University of New South Wales. Tell us a bit about how you got there. What's your background and uh, how have you ended up in academia? Great question. So I was a primary school teacher and and it was during that time that I became really curious about the role of teachers' own functioning in the classroom. You know, I saw in myself when I wasn't feeling well just how that impacted me and I just wasn't as good a teacher on that day. Um, and I saw it in my colleagues as well. And, and so I was really curious about uh, teachers. Now, what was really interesting back then is that I was kind of warned off by well-meaning people that teacher well-being isn't something that we look at. We, we, we're only concerned with students. Mm. Uh, but for me, if the teachers aren't faring well, then they're not going to be doing a good job. They're not going to be supporting. They're not going to be effective for students. So for me, it's a no-brainer to look at both students and teachers. And so I went and studied uh, postgraduate degrees and and then um, moved to UNSW to, to conduct research broadly in the areas of, of well-being, but also motivation and social and emotional development among mm. both students and teachers. Mm. Uh, very interesting fields and, you know, one that listeners to our work hear quite a bit about the idea of self-determination theory, which is a, a really beautiful sort of theory and framework around motivation and engagement. Is that something that you engage with? Absolutely. With yeah. both students and teachers. I mean, it's really relevant. It's relevant in any field. It's relevant to coaches, parents. Um, it just it, it just is such a, as you said, elegant theory that captures this idea that we have these basic psychological needs. We need to feel a sense of autonomy. We need to feel a sense of competence. We need to feel a sense of relatedness or belonging. Mm. And when we experience that within a context, that helps us to thrive. It helps our students to thrive. Um, and so, yes, that's a theory I use a lot in my research. Yeah, so well-being and motivation are two big areas for you, which is why we've got you on today. Um, we've all heard anecdotally over the last 10 years at least that a huge number of teachers are leaving the profession early. Some anecdotal research says up to 50% of teachers are leaving in the first five years. I haven't ever seen any concrete confirmation of that, but even if it was half of that, we've got a significant issue there. Uh, there is some federal government research that suggests that 20% of grads are, are leaving the profession within the first three years. Um, what do you think we lose when we lose those, you know, fresh young teachers, predominantly young, not always young, some mid-career change people? What do we lose and how do we potentially get around this? I think we lose, you know, there are, there are a range of costs that come with that. Uh, that attrition. We have financial costs. So we have schools that are bringing in new staff, training them, uh, spending, you know, funds to get them to, to to do all sorts of things to be a part of that school and then they leave and so they have to retrain. So there's financial costs. There's also academic costs for students. So students 
uh, their, their learning is disruptive. There's a discontinuation. There takes, it takes time to learn how a new teacher works. And so we have these academic costs as well. Mm. And then there's the social and emotional costs. So if you are, if you've spent several years doing a degree and you're, you know, passionate about a profession and you begin that profession and then, you know, your confidence might be eroded or your self-esteem, if for whatever reason, um, and you end up quitting, then there's those social and emotional costs to that individual as well. Yeah. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to to quit a profession that you've been looking forward to and planning for for several years. So there's lots of costs around uh, this issue of attrition. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I'm hearing a lot recently, which was never something I heard in my own teaching career, was that teachers leave at a time that suits them because maybe they're feeling a sense of uh, overwhelm, uh, possibly even burnout or disillusionment uh, as some are feeling and that they're leaving mid-term or mid-year and that was something that that was a no-no for teachers back in my day you know you always saw a class out and just hearing you talk about the social and emotional cost there um, not just for the teachers right for the kids as well. Absolutely. And I think if you are leaving midterm, it's just got to a point where you can't go on. So mm. that's your that's your only yeah, that's your only solution. And and our research really shows the importance of things like uh, positive working conditions to help teachers uh, remain in the profession and um, and, th- you know, things like uh, positive interpersonal relationships, um, great support from school leaders, access to effective professional learning. This helps teachers to want to stay on. But then there's the opposite side, which is the poor working conditions. And we know uh, that there's been an increase in administrative work for teachers over the past decade. And and then disruptive student behaviour is another issue that seems to be increasing uh, via um, Australian government reports, but also OECD findings. And so when teachers are in situations where they don't have those those supports and they have lots of those challenges, a rational person is going to want to uh, step away from that. It makes yeah. sense. Ray, you've, you're on a hiatus from your uh, very long-term teaching career at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, when you hear Rebecca talk about the, that increased administrative sort of load, is that, is that something that you've really seen change over your time in the profession? Oh, absolutely. I think um, and one of the things with that increased workload is it's a gradual thing. Um, it gradually increases little things here, little things there, and it's only when you get an opportunity to step back and really look at it, as I'm doing at the moment, from a distance and, and appreciate um, the amount of things you do on top of the, your core business, which is you know teaching and connecting with young children, young people. Um, yeah, it's definitely a big challenge even for the old-timers like me. Um, so goodness knows how a new teacher would feel. Um, you're leading on from that, Rebecca. One of the things that jumped out from the article was this concept of the reality shock that it's experienced by new teachers. Now, I've, I've been in the game for a long time and I've experienced that many times coming back from school holidays despite all my years of experience. <laughs> so I can only imagine, um, I'm trying to cast my mind back to when I started teaching, but I do remember thinking, being a little bit overwhelmed um, by just everything I needed to be on top of that was probably beyond what I'd anticipated when I was training to be a teacher. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the elements that you think contribute to this this reality shock that early career teachers might experience. Absolutely. And so, you know, teaching is such a complex job. It's 
it's more complex than many other many other professions. Teachers have to do the core business of teaching and connecting with students, but then there's all these other requirements on the side. And so when you're learning in your university degree about how to be a teacher, there's not as much about the other tasks. Uh, that That's really on the job training. So things like uh, compliance, accountability, uh, extra duties, yard duty, um, running a lunchtime club. Um, often there's little time to have your own lunch, you know, because there's so many things that are being organised. And there's collecting money for excursions or sending forms home. There's so much administrative and leadership management work. And so there's all of this procedural newness that teachers are learning when they enter the profession. And then on top of all of that, you're actually learning the names of new people. You're learning how to work with new people. You're learning how to effectively teach different types of students. And so there's, it's so new in every way. Most teachers, when they uh, get a new job, don't know anyone at the school they're working, they're going to be working at. And so everything is new. It really is just, it's as you said, it's overwhelm. It's just so, it's so new. And so one thing that we've looked at in our research is this idea of adaptability. And so adaptability, as the name, you know, as we know colloquially, is our ability to adapt or adjust. And in our research, we specifically focus on the ability to adapt in the face of new things or, or changing situations. And we find that when, you know, beginning teachers are more able to adapt, this is linked with a, a range of positive outcomes for them, but also their students. Um, and beginning teachers are being asked to adapt all day long. All day long, everything is new and it, things don't become predictable for several weeks, potentially months. And as you said, then things change and throw a spanner in the works for what you think you know how things work. So adaptability is really critical and, and great support from colleagues and leaders is one way to help beginning teachers and all teachers to, uh, to practice that adaptability in effective ways. Yeah, I'd say that all teachers uh, who've been in the game for more than five minutes would realise that flexibility um, if we can use, you know, slash adaptability uh, or even resilience, you know, the ability to respond to different situations and to to jump into a new thing. It's it's just one of the fundamental um, mm. skills, talents, mindsets that, you know, uh, teachers need to have because you get new things thrown at you constantly. Um are we doing enough? How do we how do we increase people's adaptability? Is that something you've looked at at all, Rebecca? So we've um, we've referred to other research that's that's looked at strategies among students and suggested that one way that teachers can help develop their own adaptability is um, by thinking about a situation that they've that they have had recently, then and where perhaps they didn't really like the way they reacted to it, then thinking about what could I do differently next time something similar comes up. So coming up with a range of strategies, resources, people to go to, you know, it might, it, it may be, uh, next time that happens, I'm going to go to so-and-so who taught this class last year. So I'm going to see what what they did. Um, and then testing those things out. And so it's trial and error. But this is, this is a great way to develop skills as a teacher. It's just testing things out, what didn't work, throw it out or change it you know, keep what works. And so that's one way. Now, another thing that we've looked at in our research is this idea of autonomy supportive leadership. So this comes from self-determination theory again. And autonomy supportive leadership is when uh, leaders are 
kind of help an individual to feel empowered in their job. It helped they help them to experience a sense of self-initiative, uh, that they have a say in what they're doing. And we found in our work that when teachers feel that their principal or their, their leaders are supporting their autonomy, they tend to report more adaptability as well. So that's something that school leaders can work on. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Um, we've actually had Richard Ryan on this podcast before, uh, who's one of the authors of the theory of self determination that you're talking about there, and autonomy supportive principals, leaders within schools. It's a big challenge because philosophically that might be their natural alignment, but they're under enormous pressure as well. And I think we understand that when pressure is exerted downward on principals, on teachers, on whoever, then certain elements come into play that might work against someone unless they're very deliberate and mindful about being autonomy supporting. Um, they might become a little bit more autocratic. Let's just get this done now. The The department's breathing down our neck. The parents are breathing down our neck. NAPLAN's coming around the corner, whatever those things are. Um, what, what understanding do you have of pressure, Rebecca? And is that something that you've explored um, directly in your research, the idea of how pressure impacts teachers? So we've looked at pressure in a range of ways. We've looked at pressure through uh, time pressure, sense of time pressure or, or workload. Uh, we've looked at pressure, I mean, pressure through, you know, uh, struggling with classroom management. That's another form of pressure. So we've looked at all of these these types of stresses or pressure and and consistently they are detrimental for teachers. Time pressure is one that just comes up again and again and again. It's not only, it's not only linked with uh lower well-being it's also linked with teachers desires to quit the profession so yeah. time pressure or work like excessive workloads is is just such a critical one because it it goes outside work it bleeds into home life it it's it affects everything it affects every aspect of life and so so we've looked at those types of those types of pressure yeah early on you mentioned three sort of elements that that might really um, be struggles for early career teachers and part of the reason why they're leaving. You mentioned workload. You mentioned lack of appropriate professional development, maybe targeted and chosen by the early career teacher, but you also mentioned classroom management. We might work through that list and even in reverse order. I just want to ask you about, you know, what role managing difficult classroom behaviours might play um, in teachers deciding that they can't do this anymore. I think it it does play a really big role and it depends on the schools. Some schools, so we've done some research where we looked at these different types of stress and and we found that, you know, in some schools it's not so much uh, student behaviour that's a stress. It's actually expectations from parents. So it really depends on the school. But where, where it is a stress, where uh, classroom management is a, a stress for teachers, um, it does play a really big role. And I think it's just this on, you know, it's this ongoing low-level disruption that is really problematic because it means you just can't get the work done. You're mm. constantly feeling behind. You're constantly feeling, I'm just not very good at this game. So it erodes your confidence. Uh, you, you start questioning whether you can actually do this. Um, and so that low-level disruption, that just the, the, the students distracting students, calling out, you know, that is hard. That's hard to work with. There's, of course, the, the more extreme um, unruly behaviour, aggressive behaviour, and that's also problematic because teachers don't feel safe. Uh, so there's, you know, there's two extremes to that. But yeah, classroom management is a is a really important skill that 
we need to make sure that beginning teachers and and ongoing, you know, through, as they enter the profession and continue to develop, they're getting these skills that work for them. And so, you know, there are a lot of different programs out there. There's a lot of different options for that. Uh, but for, for early career teachers, chatting with colleagues, what worked for them, what works for their types of students can be a really helpful way to find a program that might work. Um, Rebecca, I've, um, it's important, I think, to mention for any uh, new early career teachers who are listening um, to us today to point out that even experienced teachers have those challenges regularly. And, um, you know, certainly there's been many times when I've doubted my abilities despite many years of uh, teaching what I thought were some good lessons that you occasionally things don't go the way you would like them to. Um, and and that's, that's very common. I think all teachers, if they're honest, would admit to that. Um, I think that's such an interesting point, Ray, because, you know, I've worked with you as a teacher and I've seen you... Uh, the way you interact with the kids and you're, you know, a magnificent teacher who has great rapport with the kids and also really command the space really well. That's fascinating to hear you say as well that not only have you had and do you continue to have those on occasion, but I think something Rebecca said there about the erosion of confidence, I think it's such an interesting element because, again, my anecdotal evidence of being a teacher and being a uni lecturer teaching teachers is that a lot of teachers are well down the perfectionism scale um, and many, or well up the perfectionism scale. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is a lot of them are perfectionists um, and that confidence can be perhaps more readily eroded in a perfectionist um, because they want things to go just right and their their personal identity is tied to their ability to do this thing that they've trained to do that they've perhaps always wanted to do. Uh, and then suddenly the kids are a bit unruly or trying to manage time is difficult. There are so many elements. Um, do you see that, um, Rebecca, anecdotally from your students or, or in your own research? Yeah, look, that's a really interesting point about perfectionism. And I think um, and I think I'll start by echoing what Ray said about, yes, you might have taught a lesson 20 times and it worked perfectly and then suddenly number 21, it, it doesn't work at all. And so teaching is this constant professional development. It, it forces you to constantly change and adapt. There We, we hear that word again. Um, now, perfectionism, yeah, that's a really interesting one. I haven't actually studied it directly, but I suspect you're onto something. Look, we've looked at what we call uh, workplace buoyancy. And so buoyancy is this idea of overcoming these low-level challenges. So, you know, it's not the major adversity that you experience in teaching, for example, when you're, uh, you know, something, you get a major illness and that really uh, makes the, the wheels fall off the track. It's more the everyday stuff that can get us down. And, and so workplace buoyancy is our capacity to not let stress get to us. Things like having multiple deadlines, you know, on the same day, uh, that, that, challenging student behavior, all of this stuff that's part and parcel of teaching, uh, but not letting it get to us. And so if you are a perfectionist, it's harder to overcome those challenges. Uh, but cultivating this sense of this is, it was a bad day. That's okay. That happens. What am I going to do differently tomorrow? How am I going to change what I did and go forward so that you don't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, affect your sense of self so you're not feeling like oh look I can't I can't do this this is too hard for me so protecting that that this is just a game where you have to keep learning you have to keep mm. changing that's teaching 
So that's yeah. a mindset thing as much as anything, isn't it? It's about self-awareness, self-management and and really having a growth sort of approach to recognising that, you know, no one's ever going to reach mastery in this game. Anyone who thinks they're going to master teaching is uh, barking up the wrong tree. You can get better at it though. Yes, uh, yep, yeah. definitely. And also I think, um, Rebecca, possibly one of the things, you know, I've learned over the years is having some tools in your kit bag to help you get through those little sticky points during the day. Some uh, well-being hacks, if you want to use that term, to little things, you know, go for a walk, uh, a little bit of a little mindful moments, talk to a colleague um, to just help you sort of process, you know, and, and move forwards. Um, I noticed that in your research you, you talk about the importance of mentoring and um, and coaching. And I know when I started teaching I had a, a colleague who was a, a six or seven years further down the track from me at the time and he was a great source of uh, wisdom and support when I'd had a bad lesson or a bad day. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the importance of, of mentors and coaches within within schools to help early career teachers. So, so very important. Having having someone that you can turn to, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure on early career teachers to be perfect, to 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 say that show that they can do what's asked of them. And so sometimes early career teachers might not feel comfortable talking to others in their school. It helps to have someone who is not too far ahead of you, like you said, Ray. So someone who remembers what it was like being a really early uh, early in the career. It can also be helpful to have people outside of your school. Uh, that you can feel comfortable talking to. So peers who went through the same degree as you, that can be really helpful. But ideally also some more experienced colleagues who can offer some uh, some insight with, you know, a broader horizon from their experience. But it really is so important. And, you know, there's lots of research looking at coaching and just how effective it can be. So one study that I've uh, read looks at, uh, like, recording a, a part of a lesson and then the teacher working with the coach to, to talk through what occurred and what they weren't happy with and what they might do differently next time. And then they implement it. So it really is, again, it's back to that idea of what what do you want to work on? What can you do to address it? And then putting it into practice and then continuing that cycle of, of re-evaluating and refining. Everything uh, you and Ray are talking about there, Rebecca, makes me think about vulnerability, you know, and the preparedness of early career teachers to perhaps put the expectation of themselves to get it right just slightly to the side and to recognise that this is challenging for everybody um, and it's not in any way, shape or form a failure if they mess things up. Um, but in order to go to that coach, mentor, support person, more experienced other, etc., and to to be able to go to them and say, listen, I'm really not sure what I'm doing here. You know, simple things. I don't know how the reporting system works. Uh, I, I've got an interview with a parent this afternoon, you know. You know, Ray and I, we, we worked with someone recently who's very young, 21 years old and a graduate, having to talk to a parent about a, a diagnosis that she believed might be valuable for uh, for this family's child. And now the parents are at least 10 years older than the teacher she feels insecure about her ability to speak to those parents um, but also has this expectation and perhaps in her case perhaps not of just absolutely getting it right and being the professional and knowing what's what, knowing that she doesn't um, and and that that's a big challenge for her but the ability to go and turn to a, a Ray for example or to another you know, teacher, experienced teacher and say, listen, I've got this 
parent meeting coming up and I'm just really wondering if you can coach me through it a little bit because I'm really not quite sure what to say. That requires vulnerability and that's tough. Yeah, that is tough. Yeah, that is. And like I said, if you're if you want to make sure that, you know, if you're on a short term contract, for example, you don't want people exactly. to think, oh, I don't know. We, we don't know about this. This teacher, they don't seem to be able to figure anything out. So it is it is really hard. It's it's a tricky place to be in. So sometimes, like I said, outside of school support can be helpful so that you don't feel that you're being judged within your workplace if you if you don't feel comfortable. But but yes, showing some vulnerability is is and 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 accepting that you're not going to be perfect is probably really important too. Yeah. I think um, you've hit on something there, Rebecca, in terms of I was thinking about, um, you know, you learn a lot of things when you're at university and you're doing your training and you're doing your teaching practice, but there's so much more you learn and you need to learn in those early years of, of your career. I'm wondering um, what role you think um, increased targeted professional learning might play in in helping early career teachers over that 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 tricky early stage of their careers. I I think it's so important because you know it and, and that targeted is key there because every school is different, every student population is different, and so it does need to be targeted to what you need within your context. And so I think that is critical. Um, you know, when I was when I started as a teacher, I remember it was about four or five weeks in that I went and had some classroom management professional learning, and that changed everything for me. I I, I practiced it during my my degree, of course I had, but having my own classroom was just so different. There wasn't a, a you know a supervising teacher standing behind me, and so yes, that was really powerful for me to get to go and do that and put it into practice in my own classroom. Um, so that's critical. Uh, so targeted is important. It also needs to be um, ongoing, ideally. Now, if that's through the program itself, that's great. Or it could be you putting it into practice. And like I said, running that through that cycle of trial and error, or it could be a professional learning community within the school, but having this ongoing uh, nature is going to mean it's going to have more of an effective uh, uh, impact on your practice. Yeah. Um, and as well, uh, or as well as, or a part of um, that sort of ongoing professional development is sort of a combination of the two things you've just talked about there, because we hear internationally, you know, we know about Japanese lesson study, for example, which is a bit similar to what you were saying there, Rebecca, where... Uh, colleagues, two or three or four colleagues, plan, prepare a lesson together and then one after another they go and teach that lesson to a different group. When one's teaching, the other three are reviewing. It's videoed, they critique it. There's absolutely no um, sense of failure. Um, it's a sense of learning. It's a, it's a mastery mindset. It's this idea that we can get better um, and the stress is removed from having someone else in your classroom and... I don't know about you too, but my personal and anecdotal experience around this is that most teachers really don't like having another teacher in their classroom because they, they get the yips, they get the heebie-jeebies and they feel like they're being judged and then the teacher they are in front of that other teacher is compromised and things don't necessarily work out the way they want it to, which is, which is a big challenge. We know in Singapore, for example, that uh, teachers don't have their own class in the first year. You know, they have two days a week shared with another class. They get a day a week to do research around a topic, maybe classroom management, something like that. Um, it's a very supported introduction. We know your old colleague, Parsi Salberg from Uni of New South Wales, and he talks about what happens in Finland. Similar things, a very gradual introduction to the profession for young people. 
and an old colleague of mine, Sean Carney at Notre Dame, used to say that, you know, teaching's the only uh, profession where we eat our own young. And, you know, just that idea that a 21-year-old would be put in front of a class and from day one their expectations are exactly the same or the expectations on them are the same as someone who's been in the game for 30 years. I want to say, colloquially, what the hell is that all about? Um, any thoughts there, Rebecca, about how we could perhaps do things a little bit differently? You know, we're not trying to chase Finland or Singapore or Japan, but what are your own thoughts on that? Yeah, look, it is a tricky one, and I haven't actually done research in this area, so this is just me um, from my own experience, but... It's a tricky one because, like I said before, if you've got a supervising teacher, it changes the way you teach, right? So if you're in a if you're in your prac, it's very different to when you have your own classroom. I remember in my first few weeks, I kind of kept going to the teacher next door and saying, "Can I do this?" And she'd be like, mm. "Yeah, yeah." And it took me a little while to shift the mindset from I had to ask permission for everything to, "Wow, this is my own class. I can do what I choose to do here." And so it really was a shift from student to to leader. Uh, in that those first few weeks and so yes I think I agree with you that we do it's an extremely big challenge for teachers in Australia when they just go into a room by themselves but I do think we also need to give teachers the chance to be in their own rooms so I Mm. suspect the the solution is that we just need to make sure they've got better support when they're doing that so that they don't feel like I'm just out of my depth in terms of all the things that I have to suddenly do for myself and for my class. Um, yeah, that's probably my take. Yeah. It was um, the article written by Samantha about your work, Rebecca, was, is titled It's a Numbers Game, and I'm wondering if the next article might be titled It's a Time Game because it seems that the, the extra hours that it appears that Australian teachers work compared to their international colleagues um, which I think from the article suggested about six hours per week, um, somehow shifting that balance so there's a, there's more time available to provide the the mentoring and the coaching and the the, the lesson watching in schools to help early career teachers. Um, that six hours could really help. That's probably something that's that not uh, you know a, a ship that's going to be difficult to turn around. But I wonder if you've got any ideas on how we might create those those increased opportunities for young teachers to get the support that they need in the classroom? Yeah, look, it is going to be difficult because it's more of a system level thing when we're talking mm-hmm. about that because it comes down to funding, comes down to the budget. And so policy researchers will be more experienced on this, on this topic, but there are ways that schools can work around this. So I've heard, um, you know, teachers that I've worked with say things like, oh, we have, a, we, when we go to sports carnivals, we'll just let some of the teachers uh, not go so that so we only send as many teachers as we have to we don't send everyone and so then these teachers are getting an extra hour or two and then the next sports carnival is reversed and so there are ways that schools can work around their budgetary constraints to reduce teachers workloads other teachers have said oh we have meeting free weeks for example when it's report writing time so you know we just don't add any extra load onto teachers during that time and so there are, there are things schools can do, but it does, at the end of the day, it does come down to, to funding so that we can give teachers more time to, to plan, to, to, uh, to adjust, to collaborate, to do all of these aspects of teaching that are essential for effective teaching. Because otherwise it's, coming, it's going into the evenings, it's going into the weekends, and then teachers don't get a break. 
And so when they come back to school on Monday, they're exhausted. They're still exhausted. And so then they're not going to teach us effectively. So it is actually, it's a, it's a, it's a snake eating its own tail because we think, oh, we, we can't reduce the workload because then teachers won't be doing as much. But in a way, where it's a cross purposes with effective teaching. What I'm taking from this great conversation we've had is that there's a real validation for early career teachers that the struggles they're facing are real um, and and they're understood by people both outside the profession and more experienced in the profession and people like yourself, Rebecca, who are doing research on the profession and elements of wellbeing. Um, I'm also hearing that uh, challenging a sense of perfectionism is really important for early career teachers and that you don't have to get it all right. I'm also hearing that vulnerability um, and having the courage to say to somebody else, knowing that uh, you won't be judged for it, in the main, we can't guarantee that, but what we're trying to do here, what how I'd like to summarise our talk is to you know, tap into both of your experience, Ray and Rebecca, about sort of what you're taking from the conversation that we can hand to early career teachers so that they can say, yeah, okay, that could be really helpful for me. Um, what's jumping out for either of you in relation to that? Well, for me, um, something that we've kind of mentioned across many ideas is this idea of relationships and rapport. Mm. So it's not been – we haven't directly discussed it, but it's it's critical to everything. And I think that's something that we need to highlight because relationships – make this a great profession that is what makes teaching teaching and so building that rapport with students is worth taking time to do building that rapport with uh, other colleagues is worth taking that time to do and it can and it does take time and so uh, teachers might think no I've just got to get on with the get on with the work got to get on with what needs to be done mm. but if you don't have these strong relationships it's just not going to the the message is not going to get across as well uh, students aren't going to take it in as well and so so I would, would, you know, recommend for, for new teachers and all teachers is really to take that time and to not feel like it's a waste of time when they are doing it. It's not fluffy time. It's really important time. So, mm. and, and, it, and we know from all of our research that it's linked with greater wellbeing. So it's really good for teachers. It's really good for students. Because yeah. what we've seen is overcooked teachers, um, young and old, start avoiding the staff room start avoiding social gatherings because there's too much to do. They can't. They don't believe that they can afford the time. So they're not in the playground with the kids before school playing handball because they've got too much on their plate. And yet I think you're making it really clear through your research to us, Rebecca, that uh, that, that level of relationship with our students is super important. That level of relationship with our colleagues is super important because somehow we have to refine the joy in teaching as well. And a lot of that joy comes from those relationships, we're sure, sure as hell not getting the joy from putting data into a spreadsheet. Uh, I know Ray and I, we used to get joy out of having a few beers on a Friday afternoon and the occasional game of golf on a whenever, um, you know, just to really get to know your colleagues so that then you're more inclined to be able to lean on them when you really need them as well. And um, also I think, nice, and I, I, I agree with what you're saying, Rebecca, it's that those relationships are really, really important. And for the old timers like me, you know, for us to remember that, that our time in the sun in the teaching profession is is starting to wane as we get older and we need these we need these young teachers coming through with strong skills. They're very, very important um, people in society. It's a noble profession. 
and um, and whatever we can do to help them support them in those early years is 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 crucial. What a beautiful way to end our lovely conversation with Dr. Rebecca Colley, Associate Professor Rebecca Colley from the University of New South Wales. Thanks so much for your time today, Rebecca. It's been a real uh, privilege to chat with you. Thanks for having me on. It's been a great conversation, really important things to discuss. Yeah, cool, boys. Good good conversation. Ray, um, first time on the mic in the interviews chair. How, how did you find it, before we even talk about what, what came up for you in, in that conversation? How did you find the whole, you know, channeling your Graham Norton, Michael Parkinson, (laughs) (laughs) Andrew Denton uh, persona? It was an interesting experience. Mm. I didn't realise, I thought John Laws was the only one who had a golden microphone. Uh, (laughs) I see see you've got one as well. (laughs) That's absolutely not true, but hello world. (laughs) (laughs) What have you got for Um, us, Franny? What stuck out for you in that chat? Well, I think interestingly, the the importance, you know, in sen- the building a sense of belonging for new teachers, mm. um, which comes through their their feelings of connectedness, their relationships with their colleagues within the school, um, is very very important. Mm. Um, new career teachers, um, it's a bit like being thrown into the lion's den, um, and I think they need a lot of support. And I know schools do provide support to new teachers. There's some time off of class and. Um, but the the importance of mentors and those really strong connections with colleagues is, is vital for, mm. for early career teachers. Mm. I think when I was uh, listening to it, you know, it's and and just listening to you there as well, it's kind of like it's when when I hear that and when I hear academics say that, I, I reckon there wouldn't be a single person listening who doesn't already know that. The challenge is we probably don't do it as well as we might, and that for me is the the space I like to explore. It's, in fact, I'd argue in, in you know in all our work that we do, very rarely do we go in and give someone a piece of information that they've never actually thought about before. But it's like, how do we do that in this current climate? How, or how do we do that when the pressure's on in the heat of the moment? And the thing that really stuck, so that's one part of this. And, and, you know, really thinking about how do environments, be they schools, footy teams, corporates, how do they ready themselves to receive these new recruits? So it's not just putting it on, you need to be ready. You need to be job ready. Obviously, there's a part of that. But we also need to be thinking, how is the environment readying itself and, and allocating resources, personal, financial, time, whatever you want to, however you want to frame that, to take on these people. So we give them not just a good start, but actually seeing this as a continual commitment and responsibility to as you, you know, used that word belonging and connection we're actually as most listeners would know we're really in that space at the moment of exploring the the the, the importance of belonging over and above getting on with each other over and above being respectful but really digging into that so I think that's one piece for me the other piece that really jumped out at me because it just it was it was like I was listening and just ticking off going, yeah, cool, we do that. Yeah, cool, that's that's important in our work that we're doing. And, oh, there's an opportunity to do even more. Was this idea of teaching, teaching, I think, people, new, new teachers, adaptability skills, flexibility skills, the ability to be resilient, but not just this kind of tropey resilience like just, you know, bounce back learn from your setbacks yeah we again we all know that but also not putting it back on them to increase and improve exactly and master resilience themselves yep. but to actually cultivate an environment where resilience is more likely 
to yep. be generated, yeah? Absolutely, absolutely, because uh, we've had so many different guests on this podcast who all say variations on that theme, which is I'm far more resilient when I've got people I trust around me, you know? I've got, I'm far more resilient when the framing of this is you don't have to prove yourself here, you know, you don't have to earn your stripes. It's like, we've got you, and this is going to be tough, and we need each other to get through this. Um, but then, as I say, not leaving it to chance whether then people reflect, but actually building it in. So that all that that whole piece around teaching people how to be adaptable and flexible, that for me, I think in the work that we're doing, you know, I'm thinking specifically of the work I'm doing at the moment in in sport and the work I do that that, that you know corporate organisations are asking for, and then marrying that with the the stuff in school. It's it's not about it's not about their work per se it's about themselves it's about how do i manage myself in this moment mm. how do i decouple who i am from what i do so i can actually not see you know a good performance or a, a poor performance as a referendum on my sense of who i am as a person you know and it's if we can teach people that because i actually think in many ways education massive generalization coming up but in many ways education kind of teaches us otherwise we, we tend to be what you, you do, you know, and, and you do what you're good at. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I, we were just talking about Sir Ken Robinson over lunch and one of his, fra- fa- one of my favourite lines of his is, you know, being good at something isn't a good enough reason to do it. Mm. You know, find out who you are. And, and I think once you can do that, the values piece that you just mentioned, you can become more resilient. You can be more adaptable. You can be more flexible, but that takes time. It takes it takes work, and it's not necessarily time or work that people are deliberate about doing because we're too busy, you yeah. know. And with teachers, when I think, you know, more about this, you know, we're all teachers, the three of us. With teachers, teachers are so values-driven. Their purpose is so tied to the values that they attach to the work that they do. And as a result, they want to be really good at it. And when they feel or are made to feel that they're failing at it it has a big impact it's more than just an objective failing at a thing it's not like i've tried to run the city to surf and i had to pull out after 10 kilometers if you if you feel like you're failing in a vocational career where you're so tied to doing it well because of the impact that's going to have on other people as well when you start to fail at that then it really hurts um, that can be a huge challenge. And, you know, for early career teachers, and read for early career teachers anything. I mean, look at our organisation here at Cut Through. We've brought in several new people into the organisation this year, including you, Ray, and it, as soon as we make assumptions and just go, oh, yeah, look, Ray's a capable guy, he, he'll he'll find it. he'll be fine, he'll, you know, work out what it is that we do and he'll just slot in, we're really missing a trick there, saying, okay, well, what do we need to do to ensure that this capable person is most likely to be happy and successful and to have that strong sense of belonging in this environment. And so that applies, you know, we heard a story about Michael Owen when we did the podcast with Owen Eastwood a few episodes back and saying how he really didn't fit in uh, at Real Madrid when he went there. Real Madrid, is that right? Excellent knowledge. Well done. When he went there where he'd been so at home when he was at Liverpool prior to that. Stop it. When he was playing football, oh, look at that. Perko, you're I'm on so fire. I'm so tempted to say soccer. Um, <laughs> which podcast was that, Tim? Just so I can go back through the... <laughs> which episode was it? Yeah, which episode? I think it was episode 80. I'm going to say... I could be wrong. 
But thanks for the stitch up, right? Yeah, no, it's no, glad, so I'm glad on. to have you here with us. So so go, so episode, so episode 79. Episode Epis- 79. Episode 78. I'll just add it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, when you come into a new environment and you're a total novice and, you know, you're a bit skinny on confidence, you need some bumpers around you. You need some things that are going to support you to be able to be successful, whether that's joining a footy team, whether that's joining a new organisation, whether it's joining a school. And we make assumptions because these early career teachers, they've done their four years at university, they've got the ticket, but they're absolute novices. They're at the very beginning of their career, they're inexperienced, and all of the challenges that they're facing are new challenges. You know, you and I, Ray, worked with uh, a young teacher the other day who's 21. You know, how does she have parent-teacher interviews with, you know, parents who are significantly older than her to talk about the most precious person in their life? Where do you develop the confidence to be able to have that? How do we support people in those early years of their career, whatever that career happens to be? Okay, so I know you guys came across... um Rebecca Colley's work through an article that you'd uh, you'd read. So we'll just make sure that that link is in the show notes. So if people are interested in finding out more about her work, they can uh, just click the link there. All right, Franny, on your first podcast, final thoughts? Um, well, one of the things that really came through strongly for me, Dan, was the importance of mentors and, and coaches for early career teachers. Mm. Um, Associate Professor Colley made the point of stressing that was really, really important in uh, keeping... Uh, new teachers in the profession yeah and whilst I know that a lot of schools have um, staff allocated um, for that role I thought and this is you know really quite nice for the work we do one of the things that she said is almost like ideal is if that can be outside of the school as well in that so people have got the I'm going to use that word in inverted commas but you know the safe space to be able to share and 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 also i think one thing that came through is connect with other people from outside of their school so they go so they realize that they're not alone in this like their feelings are real they're valid and so um the reason that really put my interest of course is our uh thrive in your first five coaching program that we have for early career teachers you know um we've had a great year this year mainly in sydney we've got 200 early career teachers working with you guys and uh, two or three of our other awesome coaches and yeah we're just uh, we're really excited to see how that develops next year when we want to really take it I guess to the masses really so yeah if you're a principal or uh, in charge of mentoring your new teachers wherever you are in Australia actually because there's multiple ways we can uh, engage in this but if you're interested in that then if you just head over to coachingfornewteachers.com you'll find uh, more out about our uh, program. For, for early career teachers so um yeah boys great job uh, makes my life a lot easier when i don't have to do the interviewing so uh keep <laughs> keep it up and um what, what i would say is of course if uh, you've been listening to this and uh, you enjoy it or you found it interesting as we always say there's a fair chance that someone you know would enjoy it and find it interesting so please feel free to share it as far and as wide as you can and also if you could take just i don't know what would it take five seconds to like the podcast subscribe to the podcast leave a comment on the podcast that is the best and free way that you can um, really show your support for the podcast because it does some really weird things with the algorithms which just punches it out to even more people the more people who like it so if you could do that 
we would be most grateful. If you have a suggestion for a guest or a question that you might have for an upcoming Q&A session, then please head over to habitsofleadership.com, click on the podcast page, and you can find out how to uh, access us there. So all that's left to say is see you later, Perko. See you later, Franny. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Timbo. Glad to have you on board, right? Indeed, indeed. And to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Take care. Take it easy.